Hi, this is Oliver Stone, and I've just done Books on Pod with Trey Elling about my memoir, Chasing the Light. It was a very interesting set of questions Trey asked, and I think you'll enjoy the show. Hello, readers. Tom O'Neill is an award-winning investigative reporter, entertainment journalist, and published author. His most recent work is titled Chaos, Charles Manson, the CIA, and the Secret History of the 60s. And it's available now in paperback. Tom, thank you so much for the time today. How are you doing? I'm doing fine, Trey. How are you? Doing very well. Thank you for asking. So, Tom, why is March 21st, 1999 such an important date in this story? Yeah, that's the day that I got a call from an editor at a magazine asking me to do a story about the Manson case. And I wasn't too happy at the prospect and actually tried to talk her out of assigning it to me. And I'd worked with her quite a bit and we knew each other real well. And she knew that it would be a good thing for me to do. And I just had never been interested in the case. I hadn't read Helter Skelter. And I thought that everything that could be written about it had been written. So I had no idea that by saying yes that day, it would end up taking over 20 years of my life. Much like you, Tom, when you were first put on this assignment in 1999, I didn't know much about Manson, his followers, or even the murders that happened in August of 1969. For the sake of context, what are some of the basic details behind what happened on Cielo Drive in the early morning hours of August 9th, 1969? Well, at Cielo Drive, there were five victims, Sharon Tate, who was eight and a half months pregnant, an actress, the wife of the film director, Roman Polanski. And she had two house guests, Abigail Folger, a coffee heiress, and her boyfriend, Wojciech Prakowski, who was a friend of Roman Polanski's from Poland. And Jay Sebring, who was a very well-known hairstylist, playboy around town, He used to be Sharon's boyfriend, but they had broken up when Roman came into the picture, but remained good friends. The fifth victim was someone named Stephen Parent, who was an 18-year-old, recently graduated high school student who was visiting the caretaker in the back house. And sometime after midnight, the five of them were pretty horribly slaughtered by members of the Manson family who were dispatched there by their leader, Charles Manson, who wanted to ignite, and this is the official version, ignite what he believed would be a race war when blacks or black panthers or black militants were blamed on these murders of these beautiful white people in Hollywood. And that's the official version as told by Vincent Bugliosi, who was the lead attorney in the case and also the author of Helter Skelter, correct? Exactly, exactly right. So you tried to speak with a number of people in Hollywood about the aftermath of the murders in 1999, which, of course, 30 years after the murders themselves occurred, but nobody really wanted to talk. Why do you think that is? Well, that was the first surprise because I was writing the story for Premiere Magazine, which was a pretty serious film magazine. It was a monthly. It had been around for a while. And most actors and actresses, would agree to do an interview about just about anything to get in the magazine. And nobody would talk about this case except for people way down the rung of the ladder as far as power and fame. The A-list people who were around and part of the scene at the time, the friends of Roman and Sharon, Warren Beatty, Jane Fonda, Jack Nicholson, all these people 
who I thought would have a lot to share about it, just refused to even consider it. And Peter Bart, who was at Variety Magazine, but had also been running Paramount Studios, it was a few years after the tape murders, but he was a journalist when they happened, and he was close to the victims. He told me that was the most interesting thing about the beginnings of my story. He says that these people won't talk to you. What are they hiding? And he was also a part of the scene back in the late 60s, correct? He was. He was. He was close to Robert Evans and Roman and that whole crowd. So he was inside, but he was kind of considered a stiff by those guys. And he told me he thought that they weren't sharing with him the kinds of things that might have been going on up at the house. That was my first kind of line of investigation was, did these murders happen for different reasons, were the victims targeted? Did it have something to do with a lot of kind of the laissez-faire lifestyle at the house? There was a lot of drug use and a lot of crazy stuff going on. But for people who read the book, they'll see my book took a lot of different turns and went to a lot of different directions as new information became available to me. You also spoke with Vincent Bugliosi in 1999, and you wrote that he was mostly rehearsed that day, repeating things that he's been saying for 30 years at that point. How did you get him to go off script? What was it about, and why was it so important in this story? Well, it was really about the end of a five- or six-hour day with him that at first I was really flattered that he would give me all this time. I arrived at his house. Late in the morning, we had coffee and cookies in the kitchen with his wife, and then he and I went out to lunch, and he gave me a tour of some of the Manson sites that were not too far from where we were in Pasadena. Then went back to his house, and we talked until the sunset, and it was towards the end when I realized that he hadn't given me anything new. It was almost verbatim from the book and a lot of his interviews that I did what we... um, journalists often do when you really need to get something to help your story. And I said to him, I said, if there's anything about this case, it's never been reported. Some information that maybe you've known about for 30 years that you've never shared with anyone, could you share it with me? And I'd be happy to put it off the record if you'd like, meaning not for attribution. So if I used it, I wouldn't make it known that it had come from him. And he kind of hesitated for a minute or two. And then he said, turn it off, turn it off, meaning my tape recorder. And he said that he did have information and that there was a videotape that had been taken from the Polanski house after the murders when the police were going through it and gathering evidence. And he said on that tape, though in Helter Skelter, he'd reported that it was just Roman and Sharon making love He said it was actually Sharon being forced to have sex with two men against her will. And obviously the film was being directed or made by Roman. And he said it was a horrible thing to see. And then when I asked him, well, did you see it? He said, no, no, I didn't see it myself, but this is what I was told. And I told the police to put it right back and let Roman find it when he goes back to the house. This was important two different reasons. The first reason was because he was giving me information that hadn't been reported. And I then took that and thought, well, why would he change something 
so fundamental like that to protect the spouse, you know, the survivor, who is actually usually the first suspect in a murder, no matter what their relationship is. When it's a murder of a spouse, the other spouse is usually the first person the police look into. And this tape suggested that the marriage wasn't as good as it was supposed to be. It just suggested all kinds of things. So I was happy he told me that. And then I went on a path for a year or two trying to find out if Roman was involved in these murders and what it meant and all of that. But as it turned out, and this takes a while to get to this in the book, he and I fell out when I started finding out other things about his prosecution that didn't add up. And I ended up challenging him on that. And six years later, he was threatening to sue me and actually making personal threats against me. Our relationship changed dramatically. And it wasn't until after he stopped speaking to me after the lawsuit threats and everything that I realized the even more important thing he said was he had told the police to put this tape back into the house. Well, he wasn't on the case for another three months. And you'll find out how that this is important when you read the book. Because I found out there was a lot of stuff he changed about the investigation, the evidence, how things happened, the narrative of the crimes. So he was either telling me that he was on the case three months earlier because the tape was put back in the house on August 13th. He didn't get assigned to it till about the second week of November. And I didn't have that revelation. I didn't understand that discrepancy until in one of his letters to my lawyers at the publishing house where he was threatening to sue them. He repeated it in that letter. And that's when I was reading the letter. I thought, now, wait a minute. He couldn't have done it, but I couldn't talk to him because at that point he wasn't taking my call. Mm -hmm. So this was kind of the first chip away from the official narrative that fell and a lot more stuff that's actually a lot more important came into my path in the ensuing months and unfortunately years, some of the stuff it took to discover. Now, as you just mentioned, the house on Cielo Drive belonged to Roman Polanski and Sharon Tate. They had moved there less than a year earlier than the murders in February 1969, but their film careers had pulled them away from the home for extended stretches a month after moving in. What was happening at that house while Tate and Polanski were away? Well, Roman had left the house in the care of his friend Wojciech Verkowski and Abigail Folger, And they kind of had this crew of people hanging out at the house that were pretty shady Hollywood drug dealers, drug users, some criminals. And it became a real ugly place. There were some beatings and some pretty bad stuff that happened up there. Roman was in London scouting locations and working on the script of Day of the Dolphin, which he had plan to direct. He ended up never making it. And Sharon was in Italy working on a film. So Sharon came back to the house the week of the moon landing, I think the third week of July, 1969, and found this scene in her house that really upset her. And she called Roman and asked him to have those two leave. She said she didn't need them there either. She could be there alone or with her friends and He said, no, no, he wanted them to stay. And so the scene kind of continued with her there. And three weeks later was when the murders happened. 
You talk about so many glaring omissions from Helter Skelter. You cover those, and you have the paperwork to prove that Bugliosi was just flat-out covering things up at times or ignoring the obvious that would have actually helped to either solve the murders or send things in a different direction versus what the official narrative ended up as. One of those was the story of Billy Doyle's presence at this yellow house months before the murders. Who was Billy Doyle and what supposedly happened to him at the Cielo house? Billy Doyle was a Canadian drug dealer who, with his partner, Charles Taco, were on the fringe of a rock and roll movie scene in 1967, 68, 69 Hollywood. They got entree to it through Mama Cass Elliot, who Billy Doyle had met in Canada and was living off of. He was one of her boyfriends, and he was providing her with drugs. Well, Doyle and Taco were spending a lot of time up at the house, and at some point, the origins of this fight, I've never figured them out, but Doyle either had been drugged, given bad drugs or something by Jay Sebring, the hairstylist, and Wojciech, and was anally raped and left unconscious at the house. Charles Taco, his partner, went up to the house to get him and brought him back to Mama Cass's house and chained him to a tree because Doyle, when he woke up, Taco knew he'd try to go kill everybody at the Cielo house. (laughs) When he woke up, that's exactly what happened. And Taco, who told me this in an exclusive interview, said he kept Doyle chained to the tree, I think for two days, two and a half days. And then as soon as he sobered up, he got him out of the country because he didn't want him to go kill Wojciech and Jay Sebring. So Doyle and Taco and two other guys, Thomas Harrigan and Pick Dawson, were all the first suspects in the Cielo Drive murders because he had a contentious relationship, Doyle, with a lot of the people who were at the house. And he'd actually been thrown out of a party there by Polanski before Polanski went to Europe. So everybody kind of knew that they were the prime suspects. And also, the murderers left in blood on the front door of the house what looked like the word pig. The police interpreted it to be Pick, P-I-C, which was the name of Pick Dawson. So that was a bad lead that they went on and spent about a month or two months trying to figure out whether or not these drug dealers had gone and killed everybody in the house as Doyle had threatened to do. So Taco and Doyle were exonerated after their international whereabouts were verified, but it's still possible that they could have hired Manson and the family to kill. In 1999, you actually asked Taco if he knew Manson. What did he say, and were you able to verify that? He said no. The problem was a few other people said he did, including his girlfriend at the time, a French actress named Corinne Calvé, who said that Taco had brought Manson to her house once and Manson had in her pool and she threw him off the property. Whether or not that alibi was really firmly corroborated, I feel like the police didn't really have a strong alibi for them in Jamaica because there were two sightings of them by other witnesses that Bullies had kept that out of his book within a week of the murders, one the day of and one a few days before when they were supposed to be in Jamaica. For people who are unfamiliar with the book, I take a lot of the evidence that I found, and a lot of it is not conclusive, but it's solid and it conflicts with the official narrative. And I weave a bunch of different threads together through my narrative and 
let the reader decide at the end of the book which he thinks he or she thinks is the most likely alternate scenario for how and why these things happened. As you've mentioned already, Jay Sebring was among those murdered at the Cielo House. He was a former boyfriend of Sharon Tate and also a hairdresser to the stars with a mostly male clientele. In 1999, you visited Joe Torrenueva, a.k.a. Little Joe. Joe was actually Sebring's employee in the 1960s and still cuts hair to this day. In order to speak with him, you had to schedule three different $100 haircuts at his private oak-paneled salon in Beverly Hills. First of all, were the haircuts worth it? Secondly, what was the most important piece of info he provided you over the course of those three trims? I never thought the haircuts were worth it, but that wasn't because he wasn't talented. I just don't have a good head of hair for for a $100 haircut. I thought my grandfather, who was an Italian barber, did a better job in about three minutes with scissors than Joe did. But I like Joe a lot, and he was the protege of Jay Sebring. He was in his early 20s and was being mentored by Jay. And I got to little Joe, who had never given an interview at that time about the murder of his mentor, until he spoke to me only because Dominic Dunn, who was a well-known Hollywood journalist and author who wrote for Vanity Fair at the time about a lot of the stuff I wrote about in this book, that he could never write this story because he would lose too many friends and he was still writing about everybody in Hollywood, but that I should do it. And if I wanted to know the truth of what happened, because he believed that the truth had never been told that I should go to little Joe first because Joe had told him something that had haunted him to this day about a phone call. He said, but Joe won't talk to you unless you get in his chair And then after you're in his chair and getting your haircut, you tell him that I sent you and ask him to tell you what he had told Dominic Don before, which is exactly what I did. And then Joe very nervously told me that he had gotten a phone call a few days after the murders from some very powerful people in Hollywood who told him, because nobody knew why these had happened for three months. And there was a panic in Hollywood. People famously got guns, built walls around their homes, got new locks and guard dogs. People were panicked. And this one gentleman told Joe that he had nothing to worry about. They knew who did it and he would be fine. And because of the person who called his connections to government intelligence and actually organized crime, Joe, on one hand, was relieved because he knew that that meant he was safe. But on the other hand, he thought, well, then why did these murders happen? So it took me three haircuts and some coffees. It took him out to coffee a few times to get as much information as I could out of him. That was pretty fascinating. Now, Terry Melcher is somebody who is an important character in this story as well. He's Doris Day's son. In the late 60s, he was also a big music exec and a former resident at Cielo Drive. Bugliosi and others have maintained that he reneged on a record deal to Manson, who was then supposedly trying to send a message to Melcher with the murders. You started pursuing some blatant inconsistencies with this story that you admit, turned your magazine piece investigation into a 20-year obsession. What were these inconsistencies? Well, the main inconsistency, the most significant one, was Uliosi needed to convict Manson on first-degree murder 
but Manson, in Bugliosi's believed, was never at the house. He had ordered the murder, so he needed to convict Manson of conspiracy and had to show that Manson had personally selected this house and these people to be killed and then dispatched his followers to do it. Well, he had to have a reason for Manson to have done that and not just to start a race war, but to actually pick this specific house. And Terry Melcher provided him with that reason. Terry Melcher did know Manson. He met him through his very good friend, Dennis Wilson, the drummer for the Beach Boys, who had become seduced by Manson and the family in the summer of 68, allowing them to live in his Pacific Palisades estate for about a month or six weeks before he finally had to throw them out because they had destroyed the house and run through a lot of his money. But Terry, Manson believed, could get him a record deal. And Terry flirted with the possibility but never did anything serious about it until May of 1969, so about three, four months before the murders. Terry agreed to go out to the Spawn Ranch, which is where the Manson family lived communally, and pretty much have an informal audition, listen to Manson play his songs, listen to the girls, provide the harmonies and the backups. And he went twice and told Manson he didn't really think he was the one to produce them. He said he might be interested in doing a documentary TV series or sending over some people who might. But in the official version... Manson was furious because he wanted to be a rock star and felt rejected by Terry. And that was the last that Terry was supposed to have associated with Manson. So May of 1969. And then when the murders happened the following August at Terry's former house, I'm sorry, I don't know if I said that Terry lived in the house at Cielo drive before Roland Polanski and Sharon Tate. It was a rental. He rented it from Rudy Alatabelli, the owner, as did Roman and Sharon later. So Bugliosi's argument was that Manson wanted to start this race war called Helter Skelter, so he needed a house where fancy, wealthy, glamorous white people lived to frame the Panthers as murderers, and he selected that house because it served the purpose of also instilling fear in its former occupant, Terry Melcher, who by now Manson hated because he had rejected him. So without Melcher in the case, it would be impossible, Bugliosi believed, to convict Manson of conspiracy. What I found out was that Melcher actually lied about his relationship with the family. It was much more extensive. He said he'd only met Manson a total of three times, twice at the ranch and once before at Dennis Wilson's. And that that was it. He didn't know anybody else in the group. But what I found was he was much more extensively involved with them. He had one of the main men members, Dean Morehouse, living with him for a month or two in the summer of 68 at the house. Tex Watson would stay at the house, the main killer. Manson was up there much more. And even more shockingly, I found this in the district attorney's own files when I got exclusive access to them, were documents showing that Melcher went to see Manson several times after the murders had happened. And in an eyewitness account from someone who Bugliosi ended up using as one of his main prosecution witnesses, but he kept this story out, Paul Watkins. Paul Watkins told the police that he had seen Melcher 
at the Spawn Ranch three weeks after the murders, the first week of September, on his knees, crying and begging for forgiveness from Charlie. Bugliosi withheld all this information, hid it, which meant a couple of things. Number one, it's considered Brady material. It's evidence that conflicts with the narrative of the prosecution. It has to be shared with the defense attorneys. I took it to three of the living defense attorneys, and they all said that Bugliosi had never shared that with them, and had he done it, they would have fought the case differently. Number two, it meant that Melcher was lying when he was asked under cross-examination, how many times did he see Manson? When was the last time? Did he ever fear for his life? Two other people who were affiliates of the Manson group, who Bugliosi also used as key prosecution witnesses, told the police that Melcher had gone all the way out to Death Valley in September, the same month after the Manson family moved out there to an even more remote ranch called the Barker Ranch and visited them there. And that's like four hours to get just to the desert. And then to get up to Barker Ranch, it takes about an hour to go through all these switchbacks up the mountain. Was that the Dennis DiCarlo testimony? Yeah, yeah. Bugliosi admits that he would have never gotten the conviction without DiCarlo's testimony. He literally spent the second most time on the standout of any witness. Who is DiCarlo, and why did the fact that he admits in this pretrial interview that he saw Terry Melcher out at this other ranch, why did that never come up in the trial? Bugliosi kept a lot of stuff, I found out through the course of my investigation. Anything that conflicted with the official narrative that he needed to present he removed from the timeline, from the story. I believe that we'll never really know how and why these murders happened because, number one, the killers, particularly the women, the brains were so fried by all the LSD they were on that they really had no clear recollection. They just recalled whatever they were told to recall. And Danny DiCarlo was a biker in Venice who had found his way to the Spawn Ranch because like Charlie Manson, he liked young girls, you know, teenagers. And Manson provided him with teenage girls at the ranch in exchange for Danny DiCarlo providing them with munitions, a machine gun, all kinds of firearms that he got through his bike gang in Venice. So Danny kind of lived at the ranch off and on for six months, starting in the winter of 69 through the murders. And he was a criminal, too. You know, he was actually on parole. And another thing Bugliosi lied about in his book was that Danny DiCarlo got no favorable treatment in exchange for his testimony. They quietly dropped a whole bunch of other charges against him that had never been even reported in exchange for Danny DiCarlo getting up on the stand and lying. Bugliosi, in his own handwriting, had a whole different account of Melcher's relationship with the group from Danny. But when Danny got up on the stand... The defense attorneys couldn't ask him about Melcher because they hadn't seen the documents I had, but they did ask him about precisely where he was and what he saw, and Danny DiCarlo had to lie in order to stick to Bugliosi's narrative. Unbelievable. Considering everything going on surrounding Melcher, I found it interesting that you actually did get to speak with Melcher himself, and in the process you caught him in a lie that implicated both him and Bugliosi in a cover-up. How so? Oh, is that the lie about when they had last spoken to each other? Or? I believe so, yes. Yeah, I mean, there were quite a few different lies that I caught them. And in fact, Meltzer 
gave one interview about Manson since the murders and before his death. I think he died in about 2005 or six. But he had given an interview to Rolling Stone in the mid-70s because he had recorded his first record as a solo artist. You know, he's very well known as a producer, but he at one point wanted to be a singer and songwriter, too. So just because he had to promote the record, he gave one interview and talked about him never talked about him again. And he only talked to me because he heard that I had this damning information about him. And before I went to interview him, he had called a third party, Rudy Altabelli, who owned the house where the murders happened, who (laughs) he's a whole other book. He's a real colorful character. But anyway, Rudy was friends with Terry at the time of the murders. And Rudy was the one that started also giving me information about Terry's lies, about his relationship with the family. But Melcher had called Rudy before I went to interview him and said, how does O'Neill know all this stuff? Vince had promised me it would never come up. This was never supposed to be public. Yeah, and speaking of Alto Belli, I, I mean, you mentioned that you uh, did speak with him several times. At one point, you even end up driving by the Cielo house with him. This is a guy who owned the property at the time of the murders. He actually lived on the property in a separate house. And three weeks after the murders, he got to move back into his house, and he gained a fascinating new roommate at that time, which is even more mind-blowing when you consider the supposed narrative for the murders. And that was Terry Melcher. Yeah, I didn't believe Rudy told me that. It had never been published anywhere. It had been published that he moved back into the house a few weeks after the murders, kind of to reclaim it. But nobody had ever reported that Terry Melcher moved in with him and stayed there for months in the house where these horrible murders had happened. And again, if you believe Melcher and you believe Bugliosi, Melcher and Rudy never for a second suspected that Manson had been behind the murders. Rudy told me and admitted when I interviewed him once I gained his trust that he thought of Manson immediately, went to his own attorney, and this was before Sharon Tate's funeral. He flew back from Europe. He was very close to Sharon. He flew back to Europe for the funeral, and the first thing he did, he said, was go to talk to my attorney because I had a feeling Manson was involved with this, and my attorney told me to mind my own business. Melcher, on the other hand, said in his testimony at trial and in the couple interviews he gave that he never suspected Manson. What I found out after the fact was there was something else going on, and he didn't feel at this point threatened by him, and he went up there to live with Rudy. And once Rudy had told me that, and I started talking to people who knew Terry and were very close to him, and neighbors of the Cielo house, they all confirmed it and told me stories about Terry showing up at their house, a guy named Charles Eastman, who was a screenwriter down the street. He was a friend of Terry. He said Terry would come over wearing Boychek's clothes because Wojciech had left his clothes, the murder victim, at the house, and Terry would be wearing them in, like, this weird drug days. It was a pretty crazy time up there. God, that's creepy. All right, so in Mm mid-August 1969, several days after the Tate and LaBianca murders, the L.A. County Sheriff's Office raided the Spawn Ranch, but for reasons totally unrelated to the murders. It was to bust an auto theft ring, and over 100 officers raided the compound, seizing seven stolen cars, a massive cache of weapons, and arresting 27 adults and seven juveniles. So why was everyone released with no charges three days later? Well, in Helter Skelter, Vince Bugliosi wrote that the warrant was misdated, so the DA couldn't press charges because the judge would have overturned it on a technicality. 
I finally got a copy of the warrant and I saw that it wasn't misstated. It had a different date, but the date was good for, I think, 14 days around it. And I took that to the lead sheriff's investigator who organized and conducted the raid. And he said, oh, yeah. He goes, when I read that in the book, I knew it was bullshit. But no one's going to believe us. And it was, you know, five years later that Bouliosi published Shelter Skelter. But he said it made us look bad. Our warrant was fine. I said, well, then why didn't they charge anyone? He goes, you've got to ask the DA's office. We had enough evidence to put a bunch of them behind bars, especially Manson, who was a federal parolee who was arrested with teenage girls and firearms. Also, another thing Bouliosi kept out of the book was Manson had stolen credit cards in his pocket when he was taken into custody. I present a whole timeline of catch and release policy where for two years, every time Manson got arrested for crimes ranging from interfering with a police officer to rape and auto theft and drug possession, he was always released without charges pressed. Was that Preston Gilroy that you said was calling what Bugliosi had to say about the raid bullshit? Oh, no, no. The first one was Bill Gleason. He was the one who organized it. Preston Guillory was the deputy sheriff who participated in the raid and was actually one of the two officers who arrested Manson with a credit card. He left the fort after the Manson family was identified in December when they were taken into custody out at Death Valley at the Barker Ranch in October and then announced by the LAPD the first day of December, that they were the prime suspects in the Tate LaBianca murders. Preston Guillory claimed that he was at the Malibu Sheriff's Station where all the files on the raid were kept, that all of those files were removed in the middle of the night. And he said they had been given instructions for the year prior never to arrest anyone at the Spawn Ranch. It was a hands-off policy. So Preston Guillory gave a interview. He was a whistleblower to a local radio station in Los Angeles and then was immediately fired by the sheriff's department. So you needed a paper trail to corroborate what Gilroy was telling you, and this is something that you were doing as a thorough investigative journalist, making sure that you could prove something that a person was saying with it being written down on paper, and you actually got it with unsanctioned access to the LASAO's closed case archive. What did you learn from the actual search warrant for the August 16th raid on the ranch, other than the fact that it was not misdated like Bugliosi had said? Well, it was a 26-7-page warrant, and Manson's name was on every page of the warrant. He was described as the ringleader who had lured these young girls into prostitution and that he was in violation of federal parole for many different reasons. And... I also got the surveillance records in these files at the sheriff's department. This was in downtown. And in those files, I found out that the Manson family had been under surveillance for months. And there was even two reports from a sheriff's deputy or a detective saying that Manson had gone to San Francisco a few days before when the murders occurred. This was written in real time before the murders occurred. So I think the document was dated the 6th of August. The murders were on the night of the 8th to 9th. And in the document, they said Manson has gone to the San Francisco area and should be returning on the 8th of August with a teenage runaway and a large amount of narcotics on the 8th. And that was exactly, well, it wasn't exactly true. He was coming from Big Sur, 
which is south of San Francisco and towards the coast, but it's pretty close. And he did return with a teenage runaway girl named Stephanie Schramm. So they were keeping much more uh, close watch of what was going on. And I raised the possibility in my book that they knew at the very least the day of the discovery of the bodies at the Tate House, who was responsible. And now two sheriff's deputies have been given credit with knowing that this crime was committed by the Manson family and trying to convince the LAPD of that. And the LAPD, in the official version, brushed them off and said, no, no, it's not a bunch of hippies. We're looking at these drug traffickers, meaning Billy Doyle, Charles Taco. But what I believe is likely, and I don't want to say it's definitively, but I think I present a pretty good case, is that the LAPD knew much earlier on, possibly the same day, who had done the murders. There are so many bizarre, enigmatic characters in this story, Tom, and that includes a guy named Reeve Whitson. Who was Reeve Whitson? When did he first appear in your investigation? And when did you realize that he might actually be a larger piece to this puzzle? Yeah, again, you know, you get little bits of information and you dismiss it at first because it sounds either so far-fetched or just impossible that you don't take it seriously and that's kind of how Reed came into the picture. You know, I got access to a lot of people who were very important witnesses for the prosecution and very close to the victims, close to the case, who had never spoken to a journalist before. And, you know, it's just a lot of perseverance. You just keep bothering these people and hoping they'll talk to you. And again, I didn't have a lot of luck with the A-list actors, but I got a lot of luck with peripheral people connected to the case. And one of them was a guy named Hatami, who was an Iranian-born photographer who was Sharon's personal photographer, Sharon Tate. And he told me in the first interview he'd ever done, and this was in 99, that the morning of the murders, he got a call from a fellow named Reeve Whitson at 7 in the morning waking him up to tell him that everybody had been killed at the Tate house. Now, that conflicts with the timeline of when the bodies were discovered. The bodies were discovered by the maid between 8.30 and 9 in the morning. So I thought Hatami was wrong, and I thought he was misremembering, and I kind of let it go. But he had then told me another story about this Reeve Whitson, who he said was a friend of Polanski's and Sebring's, but he was also some kind of government intelligence agent, and he pretty much blackmailed and coerced and threatened him into going to Bugliosi and agreeing to testify that he had seen Manson at the house a few months before the murders when he was never certain it was him. And I was able to find Reed mentioned in the trial transcripts when Hatami was testifying and asked who was it that first brought him to the attention of the prosecution. And they said someone named Reed Woodson. So I started looking into Reeve more, and again, it's a long story, but I ended up finding out he had died about two years before I got my assignment. He was very well-connected in Hollywood, but never had a job in Hollywood. I started talking to his friends, his ex-wife and daughter in Sweden, and they all said he worked for the CIA. And the people who were closest to him told me that Reeve had confided to them in the year or two before his death, that he had been involved in a government operation where he had infiltrated the Manson family, and his dying regret was that he could have prevented the murder of Sharon Tate, but hadn't. 
and he also told several of them that he had been at the house where the murders happened after the murders had occurred, but before the police got there. Again, it's a, a lot of detail to get into, and it can get confusing if you don't see how it's laid out in the book, but you find out later there's a good possibility that two or three hours in between when the murders happened and when the bodies were discovered, something happened at the house. The crime scene was rearranged. There were noises heard that weren't reported, and it's laid out in detail everything I could find, suggesting that it was a good possibility that Reeve Whitson had gone back to that house, possibly with Manson, and rearranged the scene for something called COINTELPRO, or CHAOS, which is two government secret organizations that were in operation in Los Angeles and well in Southern California in 1969 with the aim of neutralizing the Black Panthers and the left-wing movement. And to really discredit the left-wing movement by any means necessary. And on that subject Mm -hmm. now, the FBI's domestic spying program was uncovered via stolen documents in 1971 and also the Church Committee's congressional scrutiny in 1975. COINTELPRO also wanted to create a fracture between the Black Power Party and leftist Hollywood elites like Jane Fonda, Warren Beatty, Cass Elliott, some of the people that you mentioned previously who were helping the Panthers out financially. What did the FBI say in some of these documents regarding garnering distrust through disinformation as it might relate to the tape murders? Well, they, you know, once these files were found and made public in 71, basically exposing the COINTELPRO operation, and Church looked into this and several other committees, they discovered that the FBI agents, undercover agents, had infiltrated different groups, including the Panthers and the Panthers' rivals, as early as 1968 in San Francisco, Los Angeles, Oakland, Chicago, and provoked them into violent acts against their rivals, actually inter-rivalries between Panther groups, factions, and in Los Angeles in particular, there was a group called uh, U.S. Slaves that was a militant group that was fighting for power with the Panthers. And they had spread disinformation, provoking them to kill each other. And they admitted it in these documents that had been kept secret. The most famous case was Geronimo Pratt, who went to prison for 20 or 30 years for a double murder that he didn't commit. He was exonerated because of the documents that were found showing that he had been under surveillance and that police knew that he wasn't in the city in Los Angeles when this couple was killed. He was in Oakland. One of the documents from, I think it was November of 68, and it was from the L.A. field office, said that we have to make the White People's Party, which is one of the White Panther celebrity groups that were financing and holding social meetings and gatherings to raise money and support for the Panthers. We have to make them think that when the revolution finally happens, they'll be lined up against the walls with the rest of the whites and killed, which is kind of the scenario of what happened at the Yellow Drive and what Manson had set out to do. Again, according to the official narrative, was to frame the murders of these white people on the Panthers, on black militants. Would it have been easy for the CIA to influence the L.A. County DA's office in the late 60s? And if so, how? Well, they had, I mean, there's admissions that came out of trial and stuff that sheriffs, the DA's, and the LAPD all were working with the FBI, sharing information, and the CIA. COINTELPRO is the FBI's group, CHAOS, 
they had identical objectives. They were the CIA's counterintelligence group that was formed in 67 by Richard Helms, who had become the director of the CIA, to, again, infiltrate, disrupt, neutralize, just diminish what they believed were the revolutionary groups that were going to take over the United States. This was when J. Edgar Hoover was the head of the FBI, Ronald Reagan was the governor of California, and Sam Yorty was the mayor of Los Angeles. And all three of these guys were pretty far right wing. So, uh, yeah, they had no problem influencing the DA and vice versa. To find interference from the L.A. County DA's office, you need not look much further than the trial of Bobby Beausoleil for the murder of Gary Hinman. Who were Hinman, Beausoleil, and what was the evidence of manipulation with this trial? Well, Gary Hinman was a musician, a Buddhist. He was getting a graduate degree at UCLA, early 30s. He lived in Topanga Canyon, which was kind of like a hippie enclave, a little south of Malibu in the Santa Monica Mountains. He had been a friend of the Manson family for about two years. He bailed out the girls a couple of times when they were arrested. He let some of the girls live with him. He was actually just, from all accounts, a very kind, generous person. And he had befriended Bobby Beausoleil, who they called Cupid. He was a very handsome young man who was one of Manson's followers, but he also kind of competed with Manson for power and women. In July, end of July, July 25th, 6th, I think, of 69, you know, two, three weeks before the Tate LaBianca murders, Bobby Beausoleil was sent to Gary Hinman's house by Manson with two women, Susan Atkins and Mary Bruner, in order to retrieve what Manson believed was a financial inheritance of ten or $20,000. Hinman and the girls held Hinman captive in his own house for two or three days torturing him, trying to get him to tell them where the money was. And Hidman had no inheritance, had no money. And Manson went over with Bruce Davis at one point and took out a sword and sliced off about half of Hidman's ears that one of the girls sewed back on. Manson left and left orders to kill Hidman. So Beausoleil and the two girls killed him, stabbed him and smothered him to death and left the house with two of his cars, and Beausoleil wrote death to piggies and blood on the walls, again, to try to implicate Panthers. And then Beausoleil was about three or four days later found in Hinman's car in San Luis Obispo, a few hundred miles north of Los Angeles along the coast, asleep, and there was an APB out for the car because the owner was a murder victim, Beausoleil was arrested, taken into custody, and he was to be tried in November of 69. And this was before the Manson group had been identified as Tate LaBianca murderers. But the DA's office knew that all these murders were connected, and Bugliosi was involved in that point, and they wanted to keep the two cases separate. So the prosecutor who was assigned wasn't told about the Manson family, but when he learned about it on his own, he was told not to mention it. He basically said, my hands were tied behind my back. I couldn't win the case. And he didn't. It was a hung jury. And that was kind of the first evidence I found of the prosecution muddying the waters and withholding evidence in order to prop up a fake story about the other murders. 
And Susan Atkins ended up becoming the first of the family members to roll over on Manson and the other arrestees. She was supposedly offered a lesser murder charge to tell everything she knew about the Hinman and Tate murders. Soon after, the attorney who was originally assigned to her was replaced by Richard Caballero. Even though he was serving as a defense attorney, why was Caballero such a good replacement for the DA's office? Well, he, he was an illegal replacement. So Susan Atkins was originally charged with the murder of Henman. She was with Bobby Beausoleil when he killed her. That's what she was brought from Death Valley down to Los Angeles for, to be tried in that case. And while she was at Sybil Brand at the women's jail, she told two of her cellmates that she and her friends were responsible for the Tate LaBianca murder. She gave them enough details that they then brought it to the police and the police shared it with the DA's office. So at that point, Atkins had a public defender that was assigned by the court and Gerald Condon. And Condon was representing her in the Hinman murder. And he'd been her attorney for about two or three weeks. And she had an arraignment, I think it was November 26th of 69, on Hinman, at which time she plead guilty or not guilty. And the week prior, the prosecution realized that they could use her as a witness against the Manson group, but they had to get her out of the hands of her defense attorney because he would never agree for a deal so they conspired to have him removed by the judge before they announced who the suspects were, before she was associated with it publicly, and replaced with somebody that they handpicked who had left the prosecutor's office about a year before, Richard Caballero, because he would do their bidding. And I found the evidence of that in the DA's files and the sheriff's file. I found documents recording the meetings about how the judge was going to be approached, and they sensed that he would agree to do this. And the justifiably assigned defense attorney, the one who would have looked out for his client's best interest, was never informed. He was just removed at the bench and replaced by Caballero. I mean, I thought that was one of my most important findings because until that point, nobody had been publicly identified as suspects in Tate LaBianca. Only the police knew it and the DA's office knew it. And from that point on, Atkins was in their control. And from that point on, Atkins' story was handled and managed by the prosecution and the former prosecutor and presented to the public. When they went public, they announced that she had agreed to testify to the grand jury the first week of December in order to get the indictments they needed against Manson and four other followers. But I contend in my book that nothing can be trusted from the day that her attorney was illegally switched. From that point on, we can't trust any of the evidence that we were shown in the case because the main prosecution witness was illegally coerced by the prosecution. Yeah, the cherry on top of Caballero's betrayal of Atkins was a 6,500-word story on the front page of the L.A. Times, a piece that ended up in most newspapers across the planet, and it was an edited transcription from recordings of Atkins confessing the murders in Caballero's office. How is this not treated as a blatant violation of attorney-client privilege? I think because, here's a simplification, Watergate hadn't happened yet. This was 1969 and 70. And I think 
people just trusted the government more. I think if this had happened after Watergate, everything that's so blatant to us now as being improper or illegal in this case, people didn't believe that the government would go to that length prior to Watergate. So all this stuff was being done, and the defense attorneys for the family were screaming that this wasn't fair. How can they get a fair trial if the defense attorney for one of the suspects, Atkins, sells her story to the newspapers where she describes these bloody murders and who did them, and she's going to be tried for it. I mean, everything was so improper. And even worse was, and this never was even reported at the time, but the prosecution was involved in the planting of the story, not just of the attorney, but the planning of the story. I mean, a lot of this information, when I took it to legal experts in the 2000s, you know, I took it to the president of Pepperdine University, some scholars at UCLA, USC Law School. They were all shocked by what I was showing them, you know, that that would have happened. But you also have to take into consideration what the Manson family, once they were arrested and charged, was doing in public. They were distracting everyone with their antics at trial. Manson, well, they all famously shaved their heads, carved X's in their foreheads. They would disrupt the courtroom proceedings, laugh at the murder victims' families. It was just a sideshow. So nobody was really looking at anything except the circus aspects of this, but not really into the nuts and bolts of the prosecution and what should have been done and what shouldn't have been done. So speaking of taking some of this information to attorneys in the late 90s, or early 2000s, Susan Atkins eventually became expendable because another family member, Linda Kasabian, also turned on the family. You tracked Kasabian's lawyer down and asked him about the treatment of Atkins. What did he say? He said it was criminal. Number one, she never had a signed immunity deal. She wasn't getting immunity from prosecution. She was getting limited immunity. I think they were going to spare her the death penalty. None of that was ever written in paper. The terms were flimsy. Her defense attorneys didn't really care. All they needed was for her to do what Bugliosi and his co-prosecutor Aaron Stovitz wanted, get the indictments. They knew from day one that once they got the indictments, they'd have time to nurture and develop Linda Kasabian, who was a much cleaner prosecution witness, and then get rid of Atkins, which they did. And Kasabian's own attorney, Gary Fleischman, who later changed his name to Gary Fields, said all of this was a farce. He said, I just had to represent my client. I couldn't believe they were giving her these deals. But, you know, I couldn't look out for the welfare of the others. But the way they treated Atkins was criminal. You eventually turned your attention to Manson's year in San Francisco in 1967, a time and place where he formed the family literally in the heart of the hippie movement, Haight-Ashbury. Prior to Manson making his way to the Bay Area, he was released from Terminal Island Prison in 1967. At that point, Manson had spent nearly half his life in prisons and juvie detention centers, and all of his jail time was served at the federal level. Is that normal? It's not. It's unusual. Bugliosi even mentioned it in his book. You know, from the federal juvenile institutions and the prisons he was in, the last stint he did before being released and ending up in the hate in 67 was for stealing a letter with a check from a mailbox. And that was a 10-year sentence in federal prison because of the federal crime. He was never convicted of any crime of violence. It was always, you know, running stolen cars across state lines, 
running prostitutes who were working for him across state lines. Every time he crosses state line, it becomes a federal offense instead of a state. So he was always under the government, the federal government's supervision from the time he was 12 or 13 when he first went into federal reform schools. When you started digging in the Manson family origin story, you found glaring examples of the law giving special privileges to practically everyone in the family, which usually came after a phone call to a guy named Roger Smith. Who is Roger Smith, and why is he such a crucial figure in your investigation? Well, I spent the first year and a half or so conducting a FOIA battle, Freedom of Information Act request battle, with the U.S. prisons because I wanted Manson's federal parole record because I had uncovered a couple of Manson's arrests between 67 and 69 when he either should have been charged and tried or at least had his parole violated and sent back to prison. He was on two-year parole by his first parole officer, Roger Smith. And it took a long, long time, more than a year, about a year and a half, before I got access to about two-thirds of his file which was correspondence between Roger Smith and the main office in D.C. and records of Manson. And I found out that Manson was much more criminal during that period. And every time he would get off, rather than violate him, Roger Smith would give him leniency and have him released and overlook this stuff. At the same time, Roger Smith was doing his federal parole supervision. He was a doctorate student at the School of Criminology at Berkeley, and he was studying gangs, violence, and drugs, and how the three related to each other. You know, were kids who were in gangs more likely to be violent and coerced into criminal acts if they were given drugs by the gang leaders, that kind of thing. And he was moving out of federal parole and into drug research, He was going to write his thesis for his Ph.D. on amphetamines and violence in the youth and the hate. And he was assigned Manson in March of 67. By about the end of 67, early 68, he had moved over to the Haight-Ashbury Free Medical Clinic, where he had opened something called the Amphetamine Research Project, which was a project that was federally funded. And that was his thesis research. And Manson, by January of 68, was Roger Smith's only parole client. And Manson started showing up at the clinic. Well, he would already go to the clinic anyway, and all through 67 when it opened with the girls to get free medical treatment, mostly for sexually transmitted diseases and pregnancy issues for the women. And there was all this drug and violence research going on at the clinic, and Roger Smith was operating out of there with the founder of the clinic, David Smith. And there was a lot of stuff that was going on there that had never been reported before. And I kind of lay out everything I found in a couple chapters towards the end of the book to make it, I think a good question I raised is, was Manson at all influenced by what these doctors were doing, possibly sharing while he was getting leniency and kind of transforming from this low-level con. He was, I think, 31 when he got out of prison into this famous, quote, hippie guru who had this control over young women and young people to the point where he could ask them to go kill someone, complete strangers, and they would do it. This all happened in the summer of 67, Manson transitioned from a nobody con into this very powerful communal leader. 
Yeah, and we'll get a little bit more into that in just a second. But first I wanted to ask about Roger Smith and just the ridiculous level of amnesty that he allowed Manson, considering that Manson was on probation but kept breaking the law in major ways. This was a huge secret because Manson's parole file had never been released, not even during the murder trial, which is very unheard of. You actually did speak with Roger Smith. Did he shed any light on the leniency that he provided Manson? Yeah, well, I had two interviews with Roger. And again, here's someone who had only given a couple interviews when the Manson murders happened. He was identified as the parole officer, and he was, by 1970-71, a pretty well-known criminologist. He got his Ph.D. He would go make presentations to the Senate and Congress about drug trafficking and violence, et cetera, et cetera. Well, he agreed to see me the third year I had done, about 2001. I went to see him in Ann Arbor, Michigan, where he was living and running the psychiatric unit of the men's prison there, the federal prison. And at that point, everything I showed him that suggested that he had been, at, at the very least, delinquent in his supervision of Manson, he would kind of just say, oh, you just got to look at it at the time. It was 67, 68. They were hippies. We were more lenient. And I said, but it's the very first crime he committed after getting out of prison three months after he got out in 67 was interfering with a police officer who was trying to take a runaway girl out of his cabin that he was squatting in, who was 14 years old, to get her back to her parents. And he got arrested for fighting the cop to try to keep him from getting this girl. I go, that's an automatic parole violation. You don't attack an officer when you're on federal parole. Oh, well, you know, I probably didn't know about that. And I go, no, no, I have all the documents showing you were notified. And then it was one after another after another that he couldn't explain. What happened later was, again, it took me 20 years to do the book. About four or five years later, I found out that his behavior and leniency extended beyond Manson to several of the women who were also arrested in 68 in a different part of Northern California, but two of them, Mary Bruner, who went on to participate in the murder of Gary Hinman, and Susan Atkins, who was in the Hinman murder and the Tate murders, both of them had been arrested for contributing to the delinquency of minors. They had drugged these local kids with acid. They were on a mission from Manson to recruit young kids and bring them back to Los Angeles from Mendocino. And after they had pled guilty, the judge had to decide whether to send them to prison or to give them probation. And the probation investigator, the judge, interviewed the people that the two women said could vouch for them. And both of the women sent the investigator to Roger Smith, who identified himself as a former parole officer who was now doing drug research. And he had known the women for several years, and they were both upstanding women who deserved to be given a second chance, shouldn't be sent to prison, you know, said all these wonderful things about them. But what he didn't tell them was the man who the probation officer knew about, because he's in all the reports, the one who led Atkins and Bruner into this life of crime and was in charge of them, had been his former parole client. He had left that important piece of information out. He also became the foster parent of Mary Bruner's infant baby when she had been originally arrested. He and his wife went to court and were assigned foster custody of her baby, Pooh Bear, that was this boy's name, for about, I think, six months until 
she was released from jail and given a probation sentence. So I took that stuff to Roger Smith and some other stuff in 2008 or nine, six or seven years after I'd originally interviewed him. And at that point, he'd moved to a part of the Pacific Northwest. And, you know, when I'm showing him all this stuff, just like you'll see what happened with Bugliosi in his own handwriting, he would just say, well, I, yeah, I guess that's my writing. I go, but then how can you justify doing that? You know, not disclosing that you had a much more serious relationship with a man who was the criminal mastermind of these two women. You never even told the probation investigator told me that's a huge conflict of interest that he never knew that Roger Smith had any prior experience of Manson until I showed him the documents. And, you know, oh, I guess that's my handwriting, they say. I don't, I, you know, they would just kind of shrug their shoulders and not give you an answer. It's happened again and again and again. You described Roger Smith as a pretty laid-back, almost indifferent person. Did he ever get upset with you at any point during your two conversations with him? I think he threatened to throw me out of his house the first time after he started realizing how serious my allegations were. And I think he yelled the F word at me and said he could just throw me out. I mean, who do you think you are? And I think he still felt like I was powerless, which I think he's correct because there aren't any repercussions as far as I know. He wasn't that frightened of me, but he wasn't happy that I was going to report this stuff. I guess that's understandable because you are reporting some pretty damning things in this fantastic book. And as you've just alluded to, there were two different Smiths in Charles Manson's life during his San Francisco stay, Roger Smith and then David Smith. Even though you have just mentioned him, for folks who aren't aware, who exactly is David Smith and what led to him opening the Haight-Ashbury Free Medical Clinic? Well, in the spring of 1967, it was pretty clear that there was going to be this invasion of young kids into the hate for what was being called the Summer of Love. And David Smith, if you want to look at him as a beneficent person, wanted to organize and begin a medical treatment to provide medical care for a lot of kids who are runaways, you know, some as young as 14, 15, you know, the exploding hippie and LSD movement in the hate. So he got funding. He promised it would just be treatment, no research, got government funding and private funding and started what he called the Haight-Ashbury Free Medical Clinic. It opened in June of 67. But what was also being done there was medical research on the people that came in. And the doctors, beginning with Drs. David Smith and Roger, were getting huge grants from the government to report back to them what made some of the kids that came into the hate and got involved with drugs more susceptible to having psychotic episodes, having personality transformations, what made some violent, others not violent, what were the you know, environmental reasons, psychological reasons, conditioning, all that kind of stuff. I guess now would be a good point to let folks know that a 1976 Freedom of Information Act request forced the National Institute of Mental Health to admit that it had actually been used by the CIA as a funding front in the 1960s. This was during the time that one Smith was in charge of the ARP, the other was in charge of the Haight-Ashbury Free Medical Clinic. How does all of this tie into Manson and the Haight-Ashbury Free Medical Clinic? Well, there was a third doctor there named Louis J. West, who was recruiting patients out of the clinic beginning in June of 67. 
something that he called the Haight-Ashbury Project, where he was creating what he called a scientific laboratory disguised as a hippie crash pad. <laughs> West was the head of psychiatry and the neuroscience department at University of Oklahoma and was on sabbatical for 66 through the end of 67. Was supposed to be at Stanford doing research there, never did anything, never turned in any papers as he was required to, even though he got funded for a year and a half, housing, etc. But what he was doing was he was studying these hippies in the hate in his crash pad. What I found out, this is where things get a little bit darker and can sound a little crazy, but what I had found out, well, let's back up a bit. When I learned about Wes being involved with the clinic, I already knew him because I had interviewed him about seven or eight or 10 years before on a separate story I did for a magazine about stalkers, people who became obsessed with celebrities and then wanted to kill them. That was one of this guy's very many interests, most of them involving drugs, cults, and violence. And I had interviewed him at UCLA where he had gone on to in 1969 to run their psychiatry department. I had learned subsequently that he had been accused of being involved with a secret program the CIA ran called MKUltra, which was a behavior modification mind control program started in other facets in 49, but in 1952, it became MKUltra. And it was an illegal program where U.S. citizens were given drugs without their knowledge in many different kinds of environments, prisons, universities, cities, and it ran for 20 years. And West had been accused of this when the project was discovered, went through a bunch of congressional investigations, and West denied at the time, and this was in the mid to late 70s, that he had anything to do with them, that they had approached them, and he turned them down. So when I found out that West was a part of the clinic that Manson was attending every day and seeing Roger and David Smith and they were doing drug research, then I started looking into the possibility that West had actually been a part of the MK Ultra program, whose ultimate objective was to create programmed assassins, people that they could, using drugs, hypnosis, sensory deprivation, other things, be programmed to kill someone with no recollection of their programming, basically Manchurian candidates, which is the popular version from the book by Richard Condon in the early 60s. And actually, West had died about six months before I started doing my reporting, and still a year before his name kind of surfaced in it. But I thought, well, maybe his papers will have some information in them. So I called UCLA, where he'd been from 69. He left Oklahoma after his sabbatical and went to Los Angeles in the spring of 69 to take over the psychiatry department there. And he was there until he retired in the early 90s and then died, I think it was 99. And they had not processed his papers. They said, yeah, we've got, I think they had 160 or 140 boxes, but we can't release them until we catalog them, made a finding guide. And, you know, he was a doctor, so we have to make sure there's no sensitive patient files in there. So they agreed to start releasing them a box at a time to me. So for the whole summer, I would go over to their special collections department at the bottom of their library and just pour through his papers. And I really had no idea if I'd find anything, but in my gut, I felt like I'd find something, to use the cliche, but looking for a needle in a haystack. And a couple months in, 
I found correspondence between West and Sidney Gottlieb, who was the founder of MKUltra, kind of the mad scientist who created the program and ran it for Richard Helms and Alan Dulles in the early days, in the early 50s at the CIA, and until it finished under Helms' supervision in 72, when they destroyed all the records. And I found about 20 or 25 pages of correspondence between Gottlieb and West describing the very experiments that West had denied doing when he was confronted by reporters and stuff in the mid-70s. And he even threatened to sue some of them if they reported that he had anything to do with this program. So I found the evidence. So that kind of put a whole different color on where my investigation was going. Because Bugliosi, I mean, this is one thing I found in Helter Skelter. Certain things kind of stood out in the book, and he would admit that he couldn't figure out this, that, or the other thing. And in the early days of reporting, I would cling on to those things and say, well, let me see if I can figure it out. And at one point in the epilogue of the book, when he's wrapping everything up, he says, the one mystery that remains is how this barely literate con just out of prison in under a year learned how to, and I forget his words, but something to the effect of learned how to take control of the minds and actions of these young, vulnerable followers and get them to be so totally controlled by him that they would go out and kill, and not only just kill strangers, but do it with relish and lust and then have no remorse or guilt after the fact. How did he learn that? And Bugliosi asked in the book, is it something he learned in prison? Is it something he figured out on his own? Or is it something he was taught by others? And that kind of haunted me, that taught by others. So everything kind of merged in the hate for me. I hate Ashbury 67, because that was when not only Manson learned how to do it, you would hear the descriptions of him coming into the clinic with these girls over the course of a year and the girls getting more and more subservient to him. I interviewed all the doctors there and there are articles back, you know, in the early seventies about Manson at the clinic. And they all said the same thing. He'd walk in, the women would follow him. It was kind of like the handmaid's tale. If you ever saw it, they wouldn't say a word unless they were spoken to. He would order them around and they would do whatever he wanted them to do. And this was at the same time the CIA was trying to create that control over people. And not only that, but they had one of their main scientists, Louis J. West, Jolly West, in the clinic. As David Smith told me in my interview, that he had given Jolly West an office there because he knew that he would attract government funding. And I said, well, what was West doing? He said, well, he was recruiting subjects from our patients for his research. Not to neglect anything you just said about Jolly West, because there is some mind-blowing stuff there and a number of different directions that we can go into, but I was flabbergasted when I read in your book that neither Smith was called to the stand during the trial, nor did Bugliosi or the DA's office or the LAPD even reach out to them, despite their connection to Manson literally becoming well-known through Life magazine and other media outlets a month before Bugliosi gave marching orders to the LAPD detectives. Why was neither Smith yeah. ever contacted? A big mystery. I mean, if you read Helter Skelter, one of the main passions of Bugliosi, he repeats it again and again and again, is he's telling the LAPD officers, other people in the prosecution office, the investigators, he goes, I need witnesses who can testify that Manson had this control 
over his followers such to the degree that they would go out and kill. He goes, and we have family members who are going to say that, but we need independent people who aren't accused of crimes, people who aren't criminals, because I'm not going to get a conviction on Manson unless I can prove that he had that kind of control because he wasn't at the Tate house and he wasn't at the LaBianca house when the couple was killed. And you look at David Smith and Roger Smith, they were perfect. David Smith was a medical professional. Roger was a sociologist. Both of them could have gotten on the stand. They had both actually been expert witnesses before, but they could have testified about seeing Manson control these people. David wrote a paper that he had ready for publication. He had sent one of his associates, Alan Rose, to live with the group at the Spawn Ranch a year before the murders to study the cult, the communal life. And the whole paper was about this hippie who they didn't give the last name to in the paper, because when it was finally published, Manson was known as being responsible for these murders, and he had to be careful, I guess. David Smith decided he should be careful about associating himself too closely to Manson, but everybody knew. But they would have been perfect. And of course, both David and Roger said, well, I don't know why they never called me. And when I asked Vince, he said, oh, I don't remember who they were. I go, well, they're both in your book, Vince, but not a lot. Vince hardly writes at all about 1967, that most important year, but he quotes both of them in one paragraph in Helter Skelter. As you've already mentioned, you did kind of stumble on, I won't say stumble on, you did your due diligence and you gained access to a treasure trove of documents that shed light on what Jolly West was up to and who he was doing it for. And that is because after he died, he left his personal archive of papers with the UCLA Psychiatry Department. The papers did remain untouched until you started looking through them after they were officially put into the UCLA system. And you found in reading through these papers that his Haight-Ashbury project, the project of studying hippies, shorthand is HAP, was paid for by the very generic-sounding Foundation Fund for Research in Psychiatry, Inc. How did you learn that that was actually the CIA? I got that from papers of West at Oklahoma and from one of his colleagues who identified an experiment West did there with an elephant that he had given LSC to. Everything sounds so crazy when I talk about it like this. But anyway, uh, the person who took over the psychiatry department had a document showing that that had been funded by the CIA and they had used whatever the acronym is for that group as the cover for it. And that's the same group that was funding his Haight-Ashbury project. You also mentioned really your first big discovery within West Papers was that correspondence with his CIA handler, Sidney Gottlieb. In some of his earliest letters to Gottlieb, West laid out a nine-point list of short- and long-term goals for MK Ultra. What did this plan consist of, and who were the experiments being performed on early on? West was the head of the psychiatry wing of the hospital at Lackland Air Force Base in Texas in 1952 when he contracted with the CIA. And he had proposed to Sidney Gottlieb that the test would be begun on regular airmen who were training at the base, prisoners and psychiatry patients without their knowledge. And in these letters, he discussed various ways he could conceal his research from his colleagues, including 
his main supervisor, who he said would object to it and try to stop it. And he said in the series of letters from just the first year that at some point, naturally, these experiments will have to be put to test out in the field, meaning out away from Blackland Air Force Base. What breakthrough did Jolly write to Gottlieb about in 1956 as it pertained to human memory? He said that he had achieved a very important goal, which was he had learned how to replace true memories in a person with false memories without their awareness that this had occurred using a different combination of drugs, hypnosis, and sensory isolation. That was among the most important objectives of MKUltra was tampering with the memory so people could do stuff and then have no recollection of either being programmed to do it or perhaps even having done it. Gottlieb had promised to West that he would get top-secret clearance for anyone who might become ensnared in their work. Do you think it's possible that eventually included Charles Manson and the family, considering how much leniency they were given for a couple of years? Um, that's the question I raised in the book, and I know it sounds like a cop-out, but I have to do this. I think it's definitely possible. I think it's more than 50% likely, but I don't like to say that it's definitive because unfortunately, and this is another reason it took me 20 years, I never found what I was looking for, a smoking gun showing that Manson and West were in the same room at the same time. I have great circumstantial evidence that they were, but nothing strong enough. West associate that came from Oklahoma with him, James Allen, to run the Haight-Ashbury Project and work back and forth between the Haight-Ashbury Project and the free clinic with him, said, oh, of course, Charlie had to know Charlie. We all knew Charlie. I mean, I saw Charlie every day. And I said, can you ever recall seeing the two of them together? And he said, actually, I can't. But he goes, it had to have happened. So I wanted to find paperwork. And I hate to even say this now, especially if you have a lot of listeners, They've opened more files of Wes over the last few years. And Wes did not deliberately leave these documents there. Believe me, it was a mistake. He never would have left that stuff in there. Hmm. But he had many, many pages. They were misfiled. I think a graduate student probably went through them, didn't realize what they were while Wes was alive. And he was saying, all right, just get all the stuff from this, that, and the other thing. But I don't know what's happened with UCLA since my book came out. I don't know if they've limited this archive of West or if it's still available, but I'm scared to call them because I know that if I know that there are new boxes, which I've been told, that I'll end up going back there and losing another 20 years of my life looking for stuff. <laughs> That's fair. In the early 1960s, West actually bragged during a speech to the Mental Health Association of Oregon that he could induce temporary insanity in the lab. Did he reveal those methods to that group in Oregon? He said uh, using LSD, a new drug called LSD, he can induce insanity. Now, in the letters with Gottlieb from 1953, that was on that nine-point objective list, to induce insanity in a human subject without their knowledge. And that was part of, they famously tried to drug leaders of countries to Castro and others using cigars and whatever to try to make them psychotic, you know, to make them fall apart mentally. So West was in Oregon, yeah, lecturing, and two different papers covered the lecture, and both of them reported the part of the lecture where he said he had learned how to do it using LSD without a person's knowledge. 
what was so fascinating to me was when he was exposed and accused of being part of the MK Ultra program, and he denied it in 77, he said, one of the main reasons when they approached me to work with them that I said no was because I would never use LSD on human subjects. It's too unpredictable. I've never used LSD on human subjects. Well, if anybody had gone back, and there's not a lot of evidence in the papers, but there were these two articles that he talks about it. He lied again and again and again to get out of this trouble he could have gotten in, but he was getting protected at the same time. I talked to the heads of Oklahoma and UCLA, and all of them said, well, we never looked into Jolly. Maybe we should have, but we took his word when he said it wasn't true. And the insanity, well, the insanity findings, I guess probably the next question you're going to ask me is about Jack Ruby. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Jolly West does have ties to the JFK assassination. This is something that you were reluctant to bring up to your book agent when you realize just how deep this whole thing goes. And understandably so. You don't want to be labeled a conspiracy theorist, but when you gain access to as much information as you had access to and you were able to connect the dots, not in a roundabout way, but directly through various documents and talking to people and being able to verify pieces of information, it's impossible not to go there. Was that one of the most difficult things for you throughout the course of this 20-year project was coming to terms with the fact that you were going to have to tie in the JFK assassination to this whole story? Yeah, well, everything in my inner core resisted all of the more fantastical conspiracy-like stuff. I mean, I write a little bit in the book about how I moved from New York City and the East Coast where I was raised to Los Angeles two years before I got this assignment in 97. But I've been actually coming out a lot for the five or six years prior because I was doing entertainment reporting and interviewing movie stars in Hollywood. So I got to know the town well. And the one thing that I just liked most about L.A. was the gullibility of people who would want to talk to me about UFOs and JFK and all this conspiracy stuff that I'd never been interested in, that I was really cynical and skeptical about. And to find out that after two years, I became probably worse than any of them because of this book. That was really horrifying to me, and I resisted. And even just talking to you about it now, when I just said, I guess you're going to ask about Jack Ruby, I still avoid it, but I know I had to look at it once I found out that, yes, it's true that West was a part of this program that he denied being a part of. And then as soon as he became Jack Ruby's psychiatrist, under a year after Jack Ruby shot Oswald to death, Jack Ruby had a nervous breakdown after one meeting with Wes. Wes <laughs> examined him at the Dallas County Jail and came out to announce at a press conference that in the preceding 24 hours, Ruby had had a psychotic break from which he would never recover. Jeez. You know, I'm not even going to ask you any more about this, Tom. I'm going to encourage people to go get this book, Chaos. You can get it hardback. You can get it paperback. You can get it via e-reader. It is fantastic. And even though this has been a long conversation today, it barely even scratches the surface of everything that you cover in this book. Before I let you go, I wanted to ask about a couple of other things, though. In 2006, and I know you referenced this much earlier in the conversation, you did reach back out to Vincent Bugliosi after seven years of really avoiding contact with him because you realized exactly what he was. In setting up for this face-off at the end of the book, you described some disturbing details 
details from Bugliosi's past. What happened between Vince and his former milkman? Yeah, well, in 1966, I believe, I wrote those chapters so long ago, um, Vince had his firstborn son, Vincent Jr., and something made him decide, I think it was 67, that the boy wasn't his, that he was a product of an affair between his wife and, wait for it, the milkman. It doesn't get much more cliche than that. Yeah, so Vince was a rising deputy DA in downtown Los Angeles. He was kind of being groomed there because they knew he was smart and good. But he wasn't extraordinary. You know, he hadn't gotten any great cases yet. But he was working as a deputy DA when he suddenly decided that he had to get this milkman to take a paternity test. So the milkman had left the company and gone to another company about the time the baby was born, which Vince thought was more evidence that he was guilty of this. (laughs) So Vince started stalking the milkman sending him threatening letters saying, I know that you impregnated my wife. If you want to convince me that you haven't, the only way to do it is a blood test. And the milkman thought he was crazy. And he didn't know who Vince was because Vince wouldn't say, give him his name. And he didn't identify himself as a deputy DA. Vince thought that milkman had fathered all these different babies (laughs) with women. So again, long story short, this went on for a year and a half until finally Actually, this isn't in the book. I didn't find this out until after the book came out. The milkman's daughter, she's an adult now, wrote to me after the book came out and said, I have so much more information about what he did to our family. She said, he picked me up from school when I was seven years old and drove me to a toy store and bought me all these toys. And he was trying to get information from me. And he brought me to my parents' house and my mom came out and saw him with the toys and was horrified. And she was going to share all these files and stuff. We're still talking about doing it. And I don't know if I'm going to do another book. But what did come out was that the parents were so frightened of him that they did stop having the kids ride the bus home from school. They went and picked them up from school. The teachers were instructed not to let them go with anyone but them. And Vince finally brought his wife to the house. She identified herself to the milkman's wife and she said my husband thinks that your husband impregnated me i know it's not true he didn't but please would you have your husband take a blood test and the woman said absolutely not you know we've been getting threatening letters from your husband and this is why gail said no no i'm so sorry just do it and we'll be over with she goes absolutely not just leave our house So at one point, the milkman got one of his, I think it was his brother-in-law, to follow Vince home because Vince would park at the end of the street and get the plate. And then they found out he was a deputy DA, so they informed the DA's office. There was a meeting held. Vince admitted that he had been stalking these people, promised the couple and his attorneys and the DA's office that he wouldn't do it anymore. He offered to pay them $200. (laughs) And the couple wouldn't take it. They said, just please leave us alone. So that was in 19, I think, late 68 that it finally culminated in that. And then Vince got assigned the prize murder trial, one of the biggest trials in the history of the United States about a year later. My thesis is I don't think he ever should have been given that trial. They knew he was unstable. 
And also, he was using DA's investigators to trail the milkman, and he identified the milkman as a witness in a murder case. I mean, he was lying to his own office at the time, and I have that paperwork. But I believe that he got the trial because he was compromised, and they needed somebody who they could bend to their will. Because I don't think this was Vince's invention to prosecute the case this way. I think it went all the way to the top to Evelyn Younger who was the DA and a former OSS military intelligence person who has a pretty sordid history, but that's in the book. And to finish this, this all came out, not in my book for the first time. Vince, after the Tate LaBianca trial and the convictions, Vince could do whatever he wanted. So he left the DA's office to start working on a book, the book Helter Skelter, went into private practice as a defense attorney and then ran for public office, the district attorney of Los Angeles. And it was when he was running for the DA's office in 72, and the milkman and the wife saw him on TV campaigning that they said, we have got to go and tell his opponent the truth about him, because this man can't be the most powerful law enforcement person in the city. And they did. They went to his opponent. They had a press conference. The couple told the story to the media of what, what Vince had done to them, Vince denied it, and when pressed, he told the media that the reason he had stalked the milkman, but the reason was he thought he had stolen $300 from his kitchen counter on one of his milk deliveries. And as a lawyer for the milkman pointed out to the press, that makes no sense whatsoever. The Pasadena police have no record of Vince calling them and reporting it, and he was still stalking the milkman beyond the two-year statute of limitation deadline on when the milkman could have been charged. He was stalking him another seven months after that, threatening him. None of that makes sense. So I thought it was pretty horrible that he accused a citizen who isn't a public figure, a milkman, of a crime to cover his own criminal behavior. And it's in the book, but a year later, he had another episode identical to this, but with a mistress who he beat up. And then when she went to the police, he had to go back and say she had made up the story and it's long and complicated, but all of this stuff was sorted and I didn't want it in the book, except for the fact that I was presenting a case that Vince's prosecution wasn't to be trusted, that he fabricated evidence. He's the born perjury. He withheld evidence. And I think you have to show a pattern of that and to show it in these other two cases where it's even more flagrant, I thought was important to the whole thrust of my narrative. No question. Pattern of behavior is a very important thing to prove, especially when you're talking about an attorney who is prosecuting maybe the biggest murder trials in the history of Los Angeles. And with all of that said now, you did meet with him again in 2006. How did that meeting go? And what did he say when you brought up Melcher visiting Manson at the Spawn Ranch three different times after the murders? Uh, Well, first he pretended not to know me when I called him. And then he said he wouldn't meet with me. And this was exactly why it was important for me to tell the story of the milkman and the mistress, because he did that. He used the same weaponry against me that he used against them. Once the mistress had reported that he had beaten her up because she wouldn't get an abortion of his baby. And the press found out about it. They reported it. Vince went back to her house in Santa Monica the next day. This was 72 or 73 and beat her up again, brought his secretary, had the secretary create these false bills that they got the mistress to sign, and they invented the story that Vince had never met her in person, 
but that she had hired him because she wasn't getting child support from an ex-husband and they had only done business on the phone and she was angry because she thought he had overbilled her. So the mistress agreed to do that because he was basically beating her up and threatening her again. And the police who had taken in her assault report the day before were expecting her to come the next day to the station to have more photographs taken because her swelling and bruising was worse 24 hours later. And they called while Vince and his secretary were holding the mistress hostage. And Vince said, don't let them come here. Tell them you'll go there. So she said, no, no, don't come here. I'll be up to you in an hour. And the people at the department knew that something was wrong. So they sent two officers there, and Vince was at the door and wouldn't let them in. Now, what's important about that is when it was reported the day after that the woman had withdrawn her charges, Vince talked to the police that he had never met her face-to-face, even though two cops had just encountered him at the house and told the press the same thing, that she was a disgruntled, disturbed client. He had never met her to that moment, and it was over a $200 or $300 bill. So I knew what Vince would do if he perceived that he was being jeopardized by your knowledge. So he told me he had dirt on me, and he said, I can't talk to you because I can't believe you would do something as horrible and treacherous as what you did. I'm like, well, what did I do then? <laughs> and he said, I can't even tell you that. I go, why? He goes, then it will reveal my sources. So he played this game with me, similar scenario to those other two cases. What a piece of shit. I really honestly think he's mentally ill and has always been. And he told me, well, it's in the book at the end of that interview, he told me his wife thought that he was a little mentally disturbed. This is when he was trying to get me not to print what I had. But anyway, so... We talked and he said he would not meet with me because of this, but I knew that he would change his mind because he needed to know what was going to be in my book so he could counterattack and everything Mm -hmm. uh, before it came out. So I went to his house and it was another six-hour session, but very different tenor from six or seven years before. He began with what he called an opening argument at his kitchen table. (laughs) He prepared like it was a trial. He had legal pads, all these books, notes, and... He said, I'm not allowed to tape record it. He goes, once we start the interview, you can turn your recorder on. I don't want this on tape, and I want my wife present as my witness. And his poor wife has been dealing with this insanity, had been for 50, 60 years. She came in the kitchen for the half-hour opening statement. It was so bizarre that 10 minutes in, I said, Vince, if I can't record it, I understand that. Please take notes. And he said, okay. So I took notes on it. It's in the book. And then we thought, well, the wife went to bed. She had a headache. <laughs> and, and then I asked my questions for three, four, five hours. And first he said there was no way that Terry would have had anything to do with the family after. But then when I showed him the notes in his own handwriting, he said, well, if he did, what difference did it make? You know, he was a good lawyer. It was a word salad game. And He had two recorders. I had two recorders. Every 10 minutes, he'd say, all right, we're going off the record here, and we'd have to turn off all the recorders, and then he would shout and threaten and curse at me, and it went back and forth and back and forth, and I left at about 6 o'clock at night. I said, Vince, my head's going to explode. I've got such a headache. We're not getting anywhere here. I'm leaving. And at that point, he walked me all the way out to my car. He grabbed me by the arm, and he goes, this isn't quid pro quo, O'Neill. This isn't quid pro quo, but do you have any idea what a blurb from Vincent Bugliosi on the cover of your book would do for sales. Because I'm not saying I'm only going to do that if you 
don't report all this stuff, but just think about it. Just think about what I go. That's quid pro quo, man. I told you what I'm going to report. I'm not going to change it because you're giving me a blurb. And then I got home and the phone calls began and they lasted for about three weeks, morning, noon and night. Vince calling me. He did exactly what he did with these others. He threatened me and then he tried to make me pity him. It was just nonsense. Yeah, it sounds sociopathic, and you do a great job yeah. of explaining that in the book. going to fast forward just a little bit because you talked to a lot of people for this book, despite the fact that you were declined by some. You did speak with a number of different people surrounding this case. You actually spoke with Charles Manson at one point a couple of different times over the phone. Again, people are going to have to go by chaos to find out the details <laughs> of that conversation. One person you did not speak with, and this is not surprising at all, is Roman Polanski. I'm sure you reached out to him and received a no in return, but if you could ask Roman Polanski one question, what would it be? I actually didn't get a no in return. I guess I, I can never remember what I left. I had to cut so much out. I met with Andy Bronsberg, who is his partner and has been for decades in production. He's an attorney and producer. And he told me he'd give me five minutes because he had heard from Roman's friends what I was reporting. This was in the second year. Mm-hmm. So I met Andy Bronsberg at the hotel in Beverly Hills. and He ended up talking to me for an hour. He said, all right, here's the deal. Roman's going to want to know all this. Obviously, you've got to fly to Paris. You can only meet with him once. I'll tell him he has to do it, and he'll do it. And you've got to take your best shot then because you're never going to get a second chance, so don't come back to me until you're done your reporting. By the time I was done my main reporting, about 2015 or 16, the whole episode in Sweden or Switzerland had happened where he was held in a house there. He wasn't allowed to leave because they were still trying to bring him back here for trial. So at that point, I had lost the opportunity. If I had the opportunity, Jesus, he told so many lies in his lie detector test, and I don't think that's in the book either because it never went anywhere for me except for the fact that he had more information and knowledge, just like so many people involved with this, Hmm. than he's ever publicly admitted. And I wanted to ask him about provable lies that I have from the tape and the transcript that he was misleading the police and ask him why he did that. But I lost that chance once, and I doubt that I'll ever have it again, unfortunately. It's a good question, though. Well, so this book obviously gained a lot more attention thanks to your conversation with Joe Rogan a month or so ago. It's how I found out about this book, thankfully. I'm going to take a page out of the Tom O'Neill book, like you did with your first conversation with Vince Bugliosi. I'm going to throw up a little bit of a Hail Mary. Have you heard anything since the conversation with Joe Rogan has something been brought to your attention that is very relevant to this whole story that's not a part of the book? Yeah. Well, actually, when the book came out a year ago, June of 2019, I started getting lots of emails and phone calls from people, including, like, for instance, the Milkman's Daughter, with really important information. And that was just like a month after it came out. 95% of these communications are ridiculous and don't go anywhere. And I try to politely decline people's help or information. Since Rogan, which was mid-April, they've multiplied by 100. And I get dozens of them a day. I read every single one. I try to respond to everyone. And since Rogan, I think I've got about a half dozen of really important sources who are credible and have given me information that I want to follow up on. The problem is it means doing a second book, and 
I've always wanted to because so much information didn't end up in the book, but I still haven't decided if I'm going to do it. But I'm keeping careful notes and doing a little bit of backtracking and pulling out old information. So, yeah, Rogan was a game changer, and I kind of knew just a little bit about him before I went in. I mean, I knew who he was and his reputation. And we have a mutual friend, which was the reason I got on because my friend was pushing me on him. Greg Fitzsimmons, right, the comedian and actor? Yeah, do you already know who he is? Or you? Oh, yeah, he's very funny. I've been a fan of his comedy for a long time. Oh, he's one of my oldest and best friends. And at the end of the book, when I talk about a friend of mine asking me if the whole 10 years was worth it, he's walking with two dogs, and he kind of consoles me, and I never name him. That was it. Very cool. But, uh, yeah, so Greg got me on Rogan, and he said it's a game changer if he puts you on, and they weren't exaggerating. He's <laughs> like Oprah. But for a podcast, and no matter what his politics or his crazy statements are, he's got this just massive following. And if he says read the book, he found out that they'll read the book. Last thing, Tom, and this has nothing to do with the story that you've told in Chaos. It's almost a, a little bit of a throwaway line at the beginning of the book, as you're kind of explaining who you are and what your career has been about, which does include time spent as an entertainment journalist. Is it true that you at one point got into a shouting match with Tom Cruise? And if so, what happened? I asked him about Scientology. He was in a kind of a public feud with the head of the Dyslexia Association of America because he had said in an interview that he had cured himself of his own dyslexia through the study of Scientology. (laughs) And the woman who ran the association rebuked him for it and said there's no cure for dyslexia and I can't remember what the actual argument was but actually there were three different arguments he and I had that was the one I think that set him off the most when I just started questioning him about Scientology and then there was another one about Far and Away was an Irish movie he made with his then wife Nicole Kidman and I was actually had been a horse and carriage driver in Central Park for eight years And I was still doing it part-time because I loved it and missed it. And I worked with 90% Irish immigrants, and they all just hated that movie. They said it was a hallmark version of Ireland and the potato famine and whatever. And they were offended by it. And it was the movie he had made prior to the one that I was doing the cover story on him for, which was A Few Good Men. So when it came up, he asked me how I liked it, and I didn't want to lie to him. (laughs) And I said, you know, I was kind of biased because a lot of my Irish friends from Ireland had some problems with it. And, you know, Tom Cruise is intense. He's like, well, what was the problem? What didn't they like about it? And, ah, it's not important. Goes, no, no, tell me, tell me. And then when I started telling him, he got furious. So, yeah, a lot of that didn't end up in the piece, but some of it did. Some of it did. Hilarious. He is Tom O'Neill, an award-winning investigative reporter, entertainment journalist, and published author. His most recent book is titled Chaos, Charles Manson, the CIA, and the Secret History of the 60s. It is available now via paperback. It is well worth the price of admission. Tom, and I'm going to have to repeat something that Joe Rogan told you during you guys' conversation. You're doing another book, man. You have to. You have no choice. you got to follow up something with this incredible piece of work. I know. I feel just as guilty as I did before this book came out, thinking if I walk away from it, that means nobody will know all this stuff, and it's important. So you're right. I'm probably going to end up doing it. That's fantastic news. Tom, thank you so much for the time today. Thanks for having me, Trey. It was fun.